Well, friends, would you turn with me, please, to the words we read in Daniel chapter 4, Daniel chapter 4, and reading again verse 34. Daniel 4, from verse 34. Read, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honoured him who lives forever. In Disney's Beauty and the Beast, an unpleasant and unkind prince is transformed into a hideous beast, hideous creature. And the only way that the enchantment can be broken is if he learns to love someone, and not only if he learns to love that person, but if that person learns to love him before the last petal from a rose falls. And if it doesn't happen, he'll remain a beast forever. It appears to be a hopeless situation. Eventually, he meets and he falls in love with a young woman named Belle, who also happens to fall in love with him. And in true Disney fashion, the the enchantment, the spell is broken, and they all live happily ever after. This morning, we're continuing our studies in the life of Daniel, And we're going to give consideration to the dramatic transformation of King Nebuchadnezzar and then its stunning reversal. We're looking at the verses under two headings. We're going to look at the removal and then the restoration. The removal and the restoration. First we have the removal, verses 28 down to 33, where the author focuses on Nebuchadnezzar's removal as king. Nebuchadnezzar's removal as king. Now, before proceeding, we can remember the events leading up to these verses. We began last week by looking at a second dream. Nebuchadnezzar had been at ease and he was prospering in his palace when suddenly he had a strange dream. He had dreamt about a great tree that provided food and shelter for every living creature. And then a voice from heaven announced that the tree was to be cut down. He had then dreamt about an unnamed man being forced to live like a wild animal. The dream had left Nebuchadnezzar afraid and had left him alarmed, and so he had summoned his wise men to provide him with its interpretation. They had been unable or perhaps even unwilling to tell Nebuchadnezzar the dream and its interpretation, and so Daniel had stepped forward to provide that interpretation. And we then looked at the solemn declaration. Upon hearing the king's dream, Nebuchadnezzar had reacted with great concern. He had gone on to candidly tell the king that the God of heaven had decreed that he would live like a wild animal until he acknowledged that the Most High rules. He had then counseled the king to break off his sins by practicing righteousness, to break off his iniquities by showing justice to the oppressed. And if Nebuchadnezzar had followed this counsel, Daniel said the judgment that God had threatened would be averted, it would be alleviated. Having noted these events, we can note the conceit. Look at verses 28 to 30. We're immediately provided with a powerful summary. Verse 28, the author writes that all this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. All that Daniel had spoken to him about concerning his dream comes to pass. And having heard the powerful summary... We can hear the proud statement, verse 29 and 30. We're told when the following events took place. 
It was at the end of 12 months. God had given Nebuchadnezzar a whole year to break off his sins and his iniquities. He had given him a whole year to change his course of action and to repent. He had given him a whole year to engage in a new behaviour that would reflect a new belief. New activities that would reflect a new allegiance. We're also told where Nebuchadnezzar was. He was walking on the roof of his palace in Babylon. From this vantage point he is able to see and survey the whole city, this great city of Babylon. And we're told what Nebuchadnezzar said. He starts speaking about Great Babylon. And he says that he built Great Babylon by his mighty power. There's no mention of the blood, the sweat, the tears, the toil, the taxes of his slaves and subjects that had gone into building this great city. Nebuchadnezzar says, I did it all myself. He says that he built Great Babylon as his royal residence. He didn't build it to promote the welfare and well-being of his subjects. He built it for his own comfort. Built it for his own pleasure. And he says that he built great Babylon for the glory of his majesty. This great city was built to promote the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar and Nebuchadnezzar alone. It's very clear from his words that the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had... And the interpretation that Daniel had provided for him have made absolutely no impact on Nebuchadnezzar. Well, we can move from the conceit to the consequences, verses 31 to 33. We hear the pronouncement. Look at verse 31 and 32. As Nebuchadnezzar is speaking, a voice from heaven speaks. God intervenes. God interrupts Nebuchadnezzar's proud soliloquy, his proud monologue. And the voice from heaven addresses Nebuchadnezzar directly. It says, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this is something that Nebuchadnezzar needs to hear. It's not for anyone else. And the voice from heaven pronounces that the kingdom has already departed from him. The voice pronounces that Nebuchadnezzar is going to be driven from living among men. The voice from heaven pronounces that Nebuchadnezzar's dwelling is going to be with the beasts of the field. The voice from heaven pronounces that Nebuchadnezzar will be made to eat grass like a wild ox. The voice from heaven pronounces that this will continue for seven periods of time. And the voice from heaven pronounces that this will continue until Nebuchadnezzar knows, until he acknowledges... Until he recognises that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and that he gives it to whomever he wills. Having heard the pronouncement, we see the fulfilment. Look at verse 33. We read that immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. There's no further delay. It's immediately fulfilled. And we read that he was driven from living among men. We read that he ate grass like an ox. We read that his body was dew with the wet of heaven, wet with the dew of heaven. We read that his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers, and we read that his nails became like birds' claws. Sinclair Ferguson writes, "It's a pathetic scene. 
Superman has become Subman. The one who refused to honour God's glory loses his own glory. He becomes outwardly what his heart had been spiritually and inwardly bestial. Clearly there was a deep moral and spiritual significance in Nebuchadnezzar's experience. His delusion that he was an animal is significant. The prophecy of his dream was thus fulfilled. And Nebuchadnezzar learns a very hard way that God is not mocked. God will not be belittled. God will not be pushed and reduced to the borders and periphery of a person's life. Nebuchadnezzar is learning a very hard and powerful lesson. Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we can see the indifference of Nebuchadnezzar's conscience. The indifference of Nebuchadnezzar's conscience. That's what we see here in Daniel 4. Do you remember how in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar was told that God sets up and he removes kings and their kingdoms? And do you remember how in Daniel 3, Nebuchadnezzar had seen the presence of this God, the power of this God, as he had delivered Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, his faithful servants from Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace? And then in Daniel 4, Nebuchadnezzar had been warned by this God, counseled by this God, to repent and change the course of his actions. And despite all this, despite God's announcement, despite God's power and presence, despite God's warnings and counsel, there was no positive change in Nebuchadnezzar. Only a proud spirit that was growing prouder and prouder by the day. Nebuchadnezzar was a man whose conscience was indifferent to the word of God. A man whose heart was insensitive to the word, the revelation of God. And friends, that's important for us to reflect on. John Elias was a a Welsh evangelist in the 18th century. And he used to tell a story about a blacksmith's dog. He went to visit the local blacksmith who had just bought a new dog. And shortly afterward, when he visited the blacksmith's shop, the dog could be heard barking frantically and fiercely as the blacksmith's hammer beat rhythmically on the metal of the horseshoe. As time went on, however, the barking became quieter and less frequent. Until one day, Elias looked into the shop and caught the blacksmith hammering away at the anvil and then he saw the dog, asleep by the fire, silent at last. It had grown used to the noise of the hammer. And friends, in the same way, so many people can become accustomed to the hammering of God's word that they eventually become indifferent to it, insensitive to it, impervious to it. It makes no more impact, no more difference on their lives. Perhaps they were once convicted by the word. Perhaps they were once crushed by the word. Perhaps they were once bruised and broken by the word, but as the word has hammered and hammered and hammered, they've just grown harder and harder and harder. And perhaps you're here today, friend, 
And you've perfected the art. It's a wonderful art. You have perfected the art of sitting through a 30-minute sermon with your eyes wide open so that no one thinks for a minute you're, you're sleeping, but your mind is a million miles away. You're thinking about how Rangers did last night. You're thinking about how the different teams are going to do this afternoon. You're thinking about your work. You're thinking about your family. You're thinking about the Sunday lunch. You're thinking about the fact that my shoes don't match my tie or whatever else. But your mind is not listening to the word. Or perhaps you perfected the art. And this is an even more subtle way. You have perfected the art of sitting through a 30 minute sermon. And afterward, you're able to have a conversation about it. But it makes no impact on your living. It doesn't take root in your life. You're hard to it. Or perhaps you're here today and you have a friend, you have a family member, and you've dragged them to church repeatedly over the years. And you've taken them to conferences like the Keswick Convention, the Harris Conference, the Lewis Christian Conference. And you play sermons in the house. And you play sermons and Christian songs in your car. And yet it makes no impact. It makes no difference on them. They just get harder and harder. And maybe they no longer even want to come to church with you. Friends, this morning we are being reminded that a person can have a great deal of exposure to the Word of God and at the same time they can remain completely indifferent to it. So let me ask you today, friend, even if you're just waking up now for for the next couple of minutes, let me ask you today, how are you responding to God's Word? Is it making an impact on you? Is it making an impression on you? Is it having any influence over you? What a warning Nebuchadnezzar is. That he could have received visions and revelations from God. He could have been confronted with the power and presence of God. He could have even heard the proclamation of the word of God from Daniel and it made no impact. If I could put it very simply, let's not be like Nebuchadnezzar. Well, there's the removal. But then we have the restoration, verses 34 to 37. Where the author now focuses on Nebuchadnezzar's restoration as king. Nebuchadnezzar's restoration is king. In verses 34 and 35, we see the recognition. We can begin by looking at what Nebuchadnezzar did. Beginning of verse 34. At the end of the days, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. Now, the idea of lifting up one's eyes to heaven is a posture of dependence. Here's Nebuchadnezzar, the once powerful king of Babylon. And he's looking up to heaven for help, looking up to heaven for healing, Looking up to heaven for hope. And as he looks up to his eyes to heaven, his reason, his sanity returns to him. 
Following this, he blesses God, whom he refers to as the Most High, and furthermore, he praises and honours this God as the one who lives forever. Having seen what Nebuchadnezzar did, we can see what he recognised. Look at verse 34 and 35 again. He recognised that this God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. He recognised that this God's kingdom endures from generation to generation. He recognises that all the inhabitants of the earth and all the inhabitants of heaven are as nothing compared to this God. He recognises that this God does according to his will among the host of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. He recognises that no one can stay or stop this God's hand. And he recognises that no one can ever accuse or hold this God to account, bring this God to trial and say to him, what have you done? Well, we move from the recognition to the restoration. Look at verse 36. We see the return, beginning of verse 36. Nebuchadnezzar mentions a second time that his reason returned to him. He's emphasising that he really recovered. His sanity came back. And not only did his reason return to him, his splendour and majesty also returned to him. And not only did his reason and splendour and majesty return to him, his counsellors and lords also returned to him. They seek him out. During his illness, these men tried to govern the country as best they could. But now that Nebuchadnezzar is recovering, now that he is healed, they once again approach him and seek his advice. We also see the increase. Look at the verse 36 again. Nebuchadnezzar claims that more greatness was added to him. He literally says surpassing greatness was added to him. It's an incredible insight into grace. An incredible insight into the undeserved goodness of the God of heaven. This God is enthusiastic about blessing those who draw near to him. And he gives more grace to Nebuchadnezzar. He lavishes more grace on Nebuchadnezzar than Nebuchadnezzar had ever enjoyed before. Doesn't that take your breath away? That this God could have said, I'm going to leave Nebuchadnezzar a crushed and crumpled heap. I'll give him his mind, but not his wealth. But no, God gives him more glory than he had ever had before. And we move from the restoration to the resolution in verse 37. Nebuchadnezzar speaks about what he is now resolved to do. Beginning of verse 37, he is resolved to praise the king of heaven. He is resolved to extol the king of heaven. He is resolved to honour the king of heaven. All Nebuchadnezzar wants to do is worship. Make much of the God who had brought him so low before exalting him so highly. And Nebuchadnezzar provides the reason why he wants to do this. Look at the end of verse 37. He says that he wants to make much of the king of heaven because all his works are right. He says that he wants to make much of the king of heaven because all his ways are just. And he says that he wants to make much of the king of heaven because he is able to humble those who walk in pride. 
Well, friends, as we consider these verses, we don't simply see the indifference of Nebuchadnezzar's conscience, but also the indicators of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. The indicators of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. That's what we see in Daniel 4. Nebuchadnezzar exhibits a new adoration. He blesses, he praises, he honours, he extols the God who is most high. He worships the King of Heaven. He exhibits a new acknowledgement. He affirms that this God is sovereign. And that he possesses an everlasting dominion and a kingdom that endures from generation to generation. He exhibits a new attitude. He no longer sees himself as the builder of great Babylon. But look at what he now says. He sees himself as nothing compared to this God. And he exhibits a new aspiration. You remember right at the very beginning of Daniel 4, we saw that this is Nebuchadnezzar's edict to all the peoples, all the nations, all the languages of the world. And he's wanting to tell them about what the Most High God had done for him. Nebuchadnezzar wants to tell people about this God. That's his aspiration. In his commentary on Daniel, Paul Tanner writes, Although we should be somewhat cautious in our conclusions, these actions do seem to speak of a transformed and redeemed heart of a saint. Therefore, we may very well assume that Nebuchadnezzar himself became a true believer in the same God as Daniel and that he will one day stand with Daniel in the kingdom of God that will be given to the Son of Man. He's converted. And that's important for us to reflect on today. In 2008, I came across a sermon by an American preacher You know me, I love the American preachers. And and this American preacher's name is Paul Washer. And the title is Shocking Youth Message. It's one of of the most watched sermons of all time. And I would highly recommend that anyone and everyone listen to it at some point. Get Donnie Rankin stuck on it. He listens to it, I think, on a weekly basis. And, And in the sermon, Washer preaches from Matthew 7. And he speaks about the difference between true and false conversion. Because he says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And as he does so, he speaks about the fruit of conversion. The fruit of repentance in a person's life. Listen to what Paul Washer says. Let's imagine that I show up late to this conference And I run up here on the platform and all the leaders are angry with me. And they say, Brother Paul, don't you appreciate the fact that you were given an opportunity to speak here and yet you've come late? And imagine I say, brothers, you have to forgive me. Well, why? Well, I was out on the highway and I was driving and I had a flat tire and I got out to change the tire. And when I was changing the tire, the locking nut fell off and I wasn't paying attention that I was on the highway. And I ran out and I grabbed the nut and as soon as I picked it up in the middle of the highway, I stood up. And there was a 30-ton logging truck going 120 miles an hour, about 10 yards in front of me. And it ran me over and that's why I'm late. Now, there would be two logical conclusions. One, I'm a liar 
or two, I'm a madman. You would say, Brother Paul, it is absolutely absurd. It is impossible, Brother Paul, to have an encounter with something as large as a logging truck and not be changed. And then my question would be to you, what is larger, a logging truck or God? How is it that so many people today profess to have an encounter with Jesus Christ and yet they're not permanently changed? You see, friends, when a person is converted, when a person bows the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, there is always a change. Now, sometimes that change can be small, it can be subtle, sometimes it can be dramatic and decisive, but there is always, always, always a change. When a person is truly converted, truly brought to Jesus, truly exercises a living faith in the living Christ. Like Nebuchadnezzar, they have a new adoration where they want to bless, they want to praise, they want to honour, they want to extol the King of Heaven, they want to worship Jesus. Gathering for worship on Sunday is not an ordeal. Gathering for worship on Sunday isn't like root canal treatment. Gathering for worship on Sunday is what they love to do. They love to worship Jesus. Like Nebuchadnezzar, they have a new acknowledgement where they happily affirm the fact that the Lord reigns over all things, including their lives, their public life, their private life. Like Nebuchadnezzar, they have a new attitude where they see themselves as nothing and their Saviour and Lord as everything. They're able to say with John the Baptist, I am happy to decrease so long as Jesus would increase. Unlike Nebuchadnezzar, they have a new aspiration where they want to tell everyone about their Saviour and Lord and all that he has done for them. Their experience might not be as dramatic as Nebuchadnezzar's was, Their words might not be as eloquent as Nebuchadnezzar's words were. But there has been an undeniable change. One of my favourite quotes, I'm sure I've quoted it before, is by John Newton. John Newton was an 18th century slave ship captain. He was wonderfully converted and became a, a, a pastor and an abolitionist. He's perhaps best known for the great hymn, Amazing Grace. But but here's the quote I want to share with you. He says this, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Friends, don't you find that encouraging? When you think that you don't measure up to the standards that other Christians may have set? And don't you find that encouraging when you might think that you have failed to measure up to the standards that you have set for yourself? These are words for every believer. These are words for every Christian. These are words for every follower of Jesus, especially as they prepare to go to the Lord's table. They say, I am not what I ought to be. 
I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. I am not what I hope to be in heaven. But still I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God I am what I am. So this morning. On this last Sunday before our communion weekend. I want to encourage each of us to examine ourselves. Don't bother examining the person next to you. Don't bother seeing how Ali's doing. Don't bother seeing how Eleanor's doing. Don't bother seeing how Alistair's doing. Don't bother seeing how Malcolm and Ewan or anyone else in the congregation are doing. Let's examine ourselves. Let's look at ourselves and ask the question, are the indicators of a conversion, the indicators of a spiritual change, the indicators of a life-transforming encounter with Jesus evident in my life. Is there Christian fruit in my life? And if there is, friends, however insignificant that change might be, and however small that fruit might appear to be, then your place is at the Lord's table with the Lord's people. Can I just say to you today, friends, stop looking for an emotion. Stop looking for an experience. Stop looking for an evidence that the Lord hasn't promised to give in his word. I meet people and I hear them say things like, I want to have a tingle up my spine. Then I'll know I'm a Christian. Or I hear people and they say, I want a verse to just jump out at me from the Bible and then I'll know I'm a Christian. Or they say, I, 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 want, I want some kind of dramatic light display in the sky and then I'll know I'm a Christian. Or I want to hear a voice from the sky, then I'll know I'm a Christian. Friend, don't go looking for those experiences, those emotions, those evidences. The Lord hasn't promised to give them. But if you've got a new adoration where you want to worship Jesus, if you've got a new acknowledgement where you see Jesus as King of Kings, if you've got a new attitude where you say, I am nothing and Jesus is everything, and if you've got a new aspiration to tell people about Jesus, your place is at his table. Well, as we think about this and Nebuchadnezzar's own conversion, let's sing the words of the hymn, I once was a stranger to grace and to God. If you're able to stand for this singing, please do so.